to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Massah Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, with my co-host, Liel. And our co- uh, we have a special guest this week, Liel. Uh, Laser, okay if I introduce you? Please, go ahead. This is what... Uh, Laser Berman is the diplomatic correspondent at the Times of Israel. He was an infantry officer in Givati and in the Bedouin Reconnaissance Battalion during his active IDF service. He taught at Salahuddin University in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan and studied the Kurdish language. And if he thinks we're not going to ask him about that, he's crazy. He is currently a PhD student at King's College London. Welcome, Laser. Hi, thank you. Hello, Liel. Hello, Mike. Hello, Massa participants and listeners around the world. Well, Laser, we were very excited to read about your, uh, your Washington trip with the Prime Minister to meet with President Biden and to hear all about your uh, surprise Shabbat experience that you wrote about. So the first thing I want to know is, was it weird as a journalist to write about yourself in a story? It, 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 it feels like not the journalist's style, but that you were in the story. So you had to write it from a first-person perspective. Sure. It's a little bit different than what I usually do. And it's certainly not the uh, detached kind of uh, objective journalism that, that you know, most uh, journalists are expected to do. It's, we called it Reporter's Notebook, kind of giving a... Um, an insight, we call it a color piece, into what it was like to be there, especially with such a unique experience where you have uh, the Prime Minister of Israel and his entire delegation, his senior advisors, his security staff, stuck inside of a hotel uh, in what's called a corona capsule, unable to go outside of the hotel for another two days, which includes Shabbat. So I think that was an important part of the story. It gave us an opportunity to get to see uh, the Prime Minister, the person, and um, and it was certainly an experience that I thought my readers um, should be somewhat on the inside of as much as I could could convey what really happened there. Was this your first time doing something like this in the White House, covering an Israeli prime minister? So this is the so I'll just say I've, I've been at the Times of Israel since January, so I've been there for eight months. Um, the Foreign Minister Yair Lapid has made two trips uh, in which he's brought journalists. So we went to the UAE, to Abu Dhabi, and to Dubai to open up the Israeli consulate and diplomatic mission there. And then, I want to say three weeks ago, we went to Morocco, to Rabat, to open up Israel's diplomatic office there. So I've done two trips with Lapid. This is the first one that I've done with Bennett, and this is the first trip that Bennett as Prime Minister has done with the full entourage with Israeli journalists. Um, so this was really a coming out for him as the leader of Israel, and I think that was an important part of the trip. But just on a personal level, like how cool is it to be one of the people in the White House? Like, didn't you feel like did, was it, did you feel like real as a person who grew up in America? Didn't it feel like it must have been so impressive to be behind the scenes, sort of in that world? Is that just my imagination? In some ways it is. Yeah. I mean, like everything, it looks more glamorous when you only see what we put up on, you know, on, on Times of Israel or put up on my Twitter. Most of journalism is waiting around. So you get to the White House after you've been checked by people, you know, in the hotel 
And then you drop all your bags and you're standing out on the sidewalk in the hot DC August summer sun and you're just waiting there for up to an hour. And then they decide that you can go through and then you're waiting again in the, in the, uh, in the press briefing room. So it's hours and hours of waiting for only a couple of minutes of pushing and, and, um, and you know, the, the part that seems the most glamorous when you can see the president, you can see the prime minister. So obviously there are some very interesting parts. And when I look back on this, I'll, I'll probably uh, realize how historic some of these things are. But like every job, most of it is behind the scenes, is drudgery, is waiting. Um, and then after something happens, let's say after the meeting, we have to write very quickly and get it up as they're pushing us toward, pushing us toward the vans and back to the hotel. So um, there's a lot of unglamorous behind the workings that you don't see. As they say, you don't want to see how the sausage is made. Hmm. Was there something inherently different about the experience this time? I mean, because what you wrote was essentially this uh, article, like Mike was saying, it was, like it was there was a personal element to it. And so I was, just, I was wondering, in um, comparison to the other experiences you've had, like you were saying with Lapid, um, was there something inherently different about this, especially because you were all there on Shabbat together and it sort of became more Not personal. by plan, also. Right. Right. So, uh, first of all, compared to Netanyahu, so I, I was working in the, in the army um, you know, when Netanyahu was, was prime minister, but speaking to the other journalists, they say the feel is very different from the Netanyahu years. That Netanyahu, who mm-hmm. was prime minister for a decade this time and more, um, was somewhat imperious, some, somewhat distant. So they had done some Shabbats with him. Um, intention, you know, that was part of the plan, but he would come, he would say a few words, shake a couple of hands and then leave. Bennett, who is known as being somewhat of a man of the people, was very insistent on talking to people, um, going around and really gave his time in a surprising way. We were surprised that he was willing to stand around with us on Friday night and just chit chat. Um, it's nice, but it's definitely different, different than his predecessor. Um, this was certainly a unique experience because we were not expecting to be there on Shabbat. People were expecting to get back on Friday night and go back to their families. So people with kids and you know spouses, that was an immediate consideration. You know, if someone was expected to be there with the family and was even expected to cook, then they had to start making these last minute plans. Um, and then for the religious folks, we had to start wondering whether uh, anyone would take care of us in terms of food, in terms of a safer mm-hmm. Torah, in terms of a Torah school, and in terms of prayers. Um, in the end, the Israeli embassy did a wonderful job in making in renting out the ballroom, had a full Friday night dinner with the entire entourage was there. So religious, secular, security guards, embassy staff, it was probably about 100 people, uh, which was a very nice experience. And then Shabbat day, it was, it was the religious folks who got together for, for davening, for prayers, and for a small lunch. But that, that we had to take care of ourselves. We all understood it was a unique experience, and at first it was a little bit, Annoying, even depressing. That we're, again, we're stuck in a hotel. We couldn't even walk around DC. But you know, once Shabbat came in, we think everyone understood how how nice it was to be able to spend time together and uh, you know just detach from the politics angle of it and just just have fun and get to know each other. I want to hear a little more about that, but first, I, I do want to ask about the politics of it. It seems like you, you and tell me if I'm wrong. It seems like you're getting presented sort of the curated part of their meeting. Like they, they go out to the press and they sit and they, they give word, they tell you about what they talked about. And then you bring that to the people as a journalist. But do you, do you have a deeper sense than what you wrote about? Because I don't know, like, like obviously they're crafting their messaging to present to you, to present to us. 
But do you feel a sense from being there, a deeper sense of what happened there? Sure. So you're right that when they give their statements, those are 100% scripted, gone through their advisors, and are not spontaneous at all. Um, I guess a, a possible caveat would be someone like Trump, who spoke off the cuff, would, would probably um, well, yeah. not, you know, that, that would be really what he's thinking. But for someone like Bennett and Biden, certainly, who's, who's been a politician for decades, uh, this is very much scripted. We do have a sense because on the plane there, Bennett came back and, and gave us, I would say, I don't know, 45 minute, maybe half hour hmm. um, briefing, which was mostly off the record, telling what he's thinking, what he's planning, what his staff is hoping to get out of the meeting. So several times throughout the trip, there are those um, encounters and oftentimes it's, you know, it's off the record. So you'll see things like, um, you know, either a senior diplomatic source or his advisors say there's different ways that they play with it. And sometimes it really is an advisor, but. But uh, Bennett was certainly very um, open with his time and certainly very willing to to share his thoughts, you know, in a way that was beyond what, what we were used to. Um, and Lapid does the same thing. He'll, he'll, he'll come back and give briefings. Then as a journalist, your job is to tell the people what's really going on and not just rely on what powerful politicians say. So it's using contacts, um, talking to experts in D.C. and in Israel and trying to dig up what we can. Um, and it depends how tight an operation is. In Israel, it's somewhat easier to, to get uh, information leaked intentionally or not intentionally, um, especially when you have prior connections with an advisor or someone in the know. Um, but that's all part of the journalistic game. I mean, that's our responsibility to tell the people as much as we know so that they can hold right. uh, their leaders accountable. Because right, from an outsider's perspective, it looked like they came in to talk about things that they basically agree on. Maybe Maybe the conversation would progress a little bit on how to do things, but that there wasn't, there just wasn't, I mean, obviously it was a very complicated time. The meeting had to be postponed because of the terrorist attack in Kabul. So it, it didn't look like there was a tremendous amount of the agenda to accomplish other than them meeting, you know, the, the relatively new president and the relatively new prime minister to forge a person, personal relationship. Do you, I understand that off the record means you can't tell us what was said, but can you give us a sense of, of how that informs that sort of off the record communication like what it seems very strange to me like he didn't say oh and by the way next week we're going to invade you know whatever he he, they don't give you anything like that but like so what is the point of it if it's off the record so so there's what's called i think i might have asked too many questions just now yeah no i think i think i get i I know what you're getting one question was was anything accomplished and then the other one was uh what what does the off the record mean sure so i'll start with that so the off the record it means different things to different people, which can lead to some misunderstandings. But in general, you have some sort of deep background where they tell you what they're thinking, so you're aware, so you have context for some of the things that happen. And that's to help us get it right on the one hand, and also to shape what journalists say. You know, They want to shape the narrative. Now, you can't use their quotes, and you can't use what anyone said there, but it gives you a direction. He might say, I'm going to bring this up because I'm, I am concerned about this. And you can know you it, make but you up can't an example it. that sort of illustrates? Because it's... Uh, yeah, I would have to make it up. Um, I shouldn't ask. I shouldn't ask a journalist to make something up as an example, but right. But but in theory, they could say something like this: um, We are going to talk about, um, let's say, the importance of bi- the bipartisan relationship. Okay, we're mm-hmm. going. That's going to be a message that we're saying because we feel that bipartisanship is slipping in the U.S.-Israel thing. Now, they would never say that, right? Because the Israeli mm-hmm. Prime Minister and Israel is not going to start saying that the Democratic Party is 
uh, slipping in terms of its support. But they might tell us that it's a concern for them, and that that's the reason that we're going to see this theme. Mm-hmm. Now, we can't write it, but it helps us understand. It helps us look out for other things that might indicate that. And then that also can guide me, and then I can talk to other people that aren't in the administration and ask that question mm-hmm. and try to get it from someone else. So that's the deep background. And then you have other sorts of off the record, like you could say that the Times of Israel had learn, has learned. You can use the information without giving the source. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the ideal thing for a journalist and what a reader wants to know, they want to know who said it, they want to know when it was said, and then they want to know what was mm-hmm. said. So ideally, it would be Prime Minister Naftali Bennett told the Times of Israel X, Y, Z. But th- those are rarer and rarer the higher up you move, the, you move up the food chain. Uh, so that was that was your second question. Your first question what, what, was anything accomplished. I think you're absolutely correct that there was. This is a pretty low stakes meeting, uh, both in a good way and a bad way for Bennett. I think um, he get, he laid out four goals of the trip to us. He said, first of all, he wants to establish the personal connection between him and President Biden. Uh, second of all, he wants to lay out his emerging strategy, if you want to call it that, for dealing with the Iran issue, both the nuclear issue and Iran's regional activities, its proxy relationships. Uh, Number three, to deal with the visa waiver program so that Israelis will be able to enter the United States without applying for visas. And number four is to get uh, the Iron Dome stocks replenished. And his advisors were quite optimistic that all four of these things were accomplished. Um, but as you say, that's somewhat low stakes. It's not like when Netanyahu would come here uh, ready to do battle with President Obama over the Iran nuclear thing, the Iran nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. Um, again, let's not forget, we have another Iran nuclear deal, or maybe the same one, probably not exactly the same, but on the table. Uh, talks should be starting in Vienna in the coming weeks. And whereas Netanyahu was pounding the table and even going to Congress, uh, Bennett has committed to not have any sort of public... When they disagree, mm-hmm. uh, the, the disagreements will be in private. So that's very different. Um, and it seems like perhaps the Israeli side has kind of resigned to the fact that they cannot influence America's decision on this. And I think that might be, they are correct in that. There's also the side that... Let's not forget like that both the, were framing it as if they agreed, even though they don't really exactly agree. Nah, that's pretty common. They language very similarly. Yeah. Right, right. But there are certainly fundamental disagreements, especially if Bennett is going to stick to his guns on this. But he seemed mm-hmm. to not want to pick a fight right now. Uh, you can say that's wise. You can say that it's not wise. But uh, certainly the focus here was on establishing the relationship and, and showing how warm it was and how warm it was in comparison to the Netanyahu-Obama mm-hmm. relationship. Um, and, and that even though Netanyahu was a right Netanyahu fan... Netanyahu and probably most people... <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, and that even though a lot of people, yeah, I think it was important for Bennett to show that even though he's he's a right winger, um, that he in a democratic administration can get along. And it was more of a Netanyahu thing that he was Netanyahu was personally affiliated with the Republican Party in democratic eyes, and Bennett wants to show that 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 that, that is not him. That he is he is his own man. Um, I will also say, let's not forget that Bennett won seven seats in the last elections, and he is somehow prime minister. Uh, he does not have a ton of legitimacy. He's ruling over, or he's leading a, an ideologically incoherent coalition of Islamists, far-leftists like Meretz, pro-settlers, the, the spectrum, basically the anti-BD. Which he likes to call folks. diverse, yeah. Yeah, diverse, but that's good in some ways, and in politics that can yeah, be bad because then what are, you, what's the, yeah. what are the goals here? What, like how, you know, mm. Does this represent what people voted 
uh, Bennett into office for. Well, they didn't really vote him into office. They just gave him seven mandates. So it's important for him to show that he is actually Israel's leader now and to get that photo op in the White House and, mm-hmm. and to, to show Israelis uh, and perhaps the world that, that he is that, that leadership image. Um, that went less well because when less you get well. your meeting put off um, and you have to spend two days of your time stuck in a hotel because the president of the United States can't meet you on, on Thursday, that certainly reduces uh, how, how powerful and how, and how serious you look. So there's no question that that was a bit disappointing for the Israeli side. Mm. Can you, do you have any sense of how the meeting looked to the Israeli community and then how the meeting looked to the Jewish American community? Because um, I think our listeners are sort of in kind of in both places sometimes. Um, and so like you're like you're talking about the the image that it created and the statement that it made for for the people watching and the people interested. Do you have any sense of kind of what kind of. Yeah, it depends uh, who who the person is, I think, because if someone is has really appreciated what Netanyahu has done over the years and saw him as a capable, strong leader then they're going to see Bennett agreeing not to criticize the Iran deal as a capitulation of a weak leader. However, if you are someone that thinks that the Israel-U.S. relationship, the bipartisan Israel-U.S. relationship, uh, must be protected at all costs and that Netanyahu unnecessarily made waves, sometimes for personal reasons, then you're going to appreciate the fact that Bennett was able to get through a very positive um, visit with no public disagreement. So again, it depends where you are politically and, and, and what you care about. All in all, it was uh, somewhat low stakes. Um, nothing too big was accomplished here. Again, uh, the, with the Afghanistan story in the background, initially, right? So Bennett knew that he was fine to America when the, the withdrawal fiasco, whatever you call it, was going on. And then with the suicide bombing at the Kabul airport, then it went into the foreground and it really took over. So that was obviously a risk for the Israelis, but they decided that they wanted to go ahead with this meeting anyway. And they paid a small price for it. Mm-hmm. The fact that they got pushed mm-hmm. they got pushed over a day and had to spend a couple right. more days of the prime minister. Yeah, and they had to spend a couple more days uh, of the prime minister's time in a hotel. Which in a way was to also your disadvantage and advantage. It seemed to me, by the way, that, that Biden was really emphasizing COVID stuff. And Bennett was really emphasizing security stuff, which I assume is sort of packaged more to their domestic audience, which I guess is what they're supposed to do as politician. But then when Bennett, and it's a little unfair for me, maybe this is cynical, when Bennett started quoting Isaiah in Hebrew, and he made that weird little joke about, I could tell you it says anything because you don't speak Hebrew, which I thought was a weird joke to make the President of the United States. But anyway, uh, it made me uncomfortable. But but I wonder, and you know, he's talking about how like the modern Israel is the clear, biblical. I was wondering, and I, I don't know how well, how as a journalist, what, what do you think of my insight, or can you share your thoughts? Was Bennett trying to get to the evangelical American voters who were pretty cool about him and loved Netanyahu, and he was trying to make inroads there? And I think it's unfair, because Bennett's a religious guy. Like you wrote on Shabbat, I got a little choked up, actually, as a Jewish educator who spends my whole life trying to increase... Jewish identity, to see the Prime Minister start Shabbat for a group of assembled journalists with a Dvar Torah, I thought that was very beautiful. It is his character to do that. So I'm being both giving him the credit that that's his personality, that he would want to connect it biblically, as would Bibi. Bibi always carried around a little coin from archaeology. 
But I also thought Bennett was a little bit politicking to the American right, maybe. Is that am I way off there? Uh, um, so, yeah, so first of all, yeah, he did open with a two of our tours, actually. And that is certainly who he is. And, and like Biden, he's a very personable politician. And I think that's his his political style. Uh, as opposed to kind of a distant academic Obama, or like I said, a very imperious Netanyahu. Um, the, yeah, that meeting, that part of the meeting, I think it was somewhat awkward. And that's when people say Biden might have been dozing off. He was definitely looking down. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, it was a strange quote that he used. and It didn't especially land very well. Um, and maybe he'll have to get better at that. I think he thought it. Yeah, he thought it was a clever, um, a clever rhetorical flourish. Was it for the American Christian audience? Perhaps, perhaps it was. And if it was, I think that is actually. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's actually uh, a more sophisticated move than it seemed, um, because they were very the American Christian right was was very very supportive of Netanyahu and appreciated yeah. his outreach to them. And you recently had Ron Dermer say that uh, you know the future of American Zionism is a Christian. Uh, is a Christian thing and less of a Jewish thing. So, so they certainly um, focused on the American Christian, uh, pro-Israel Christian community. So, if it was, I don't think it was though. I think it was, that's just who Bennett is, uh-huh. and he he couldn't help himself, especially on a Friday. But I, th- I think he got the sense that it didn't land that well because he was talking about other verses that he could have used. He was said he he considered using the one that he used for uh, for his Devar Torah, the Ye though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, Gam mm-hmm. but he said that, then he realized that American Christians use that as funerals, and it wasn't exactly the appropriate verse to use for a meeting with the president. Um, but yeah, I think that's who he is, and he'll probably do it again. I think that's very much his style and where he comes from. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just don't know how well it landed. I, it didn't look from Biden's body language that it landed. I, I want to get back to now to your personal, <laughs> to your personal angle on it. First of all, there were some off-the-record conversations with fellow journalists, including some veteran journalists. Any of that? Any of that storytelling that you can share with us? Because it sounded super interesting. You're 100 percent correct. In the piece, which we'll link in the in the podcast. Yeah. yeah so Nahum Barnea has covered every. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister since Golda Meir in uh, 73. Uh, every, I guess, American president since Nixon, it would be then, um, spent time as a, as a correspondent in D.C. for many years. You know, he's kind of the elder statesman of this diplomatic press pool. And he's also a very good storyteller. And so yeah. he was telling stories about a wonderful, yeah, absolutely, and hilarious and oftentimes inappropriate, some of the things that go on, go on behind the scenes. Um, Those are really the ones we want here on the podcast. So, Right, exactly. Even if it damages uh, so, your relationship with Barnea, come on, man. Uh, I, think, I think he would be fine telling him. He, he really enjoys doing that. But uh, a lot of it was, was behind the scenes. He was behind the scenes in the Rabin-Paris uh, rivalry. So the two of them really, I don't know what the word is, hated each other. They were, they were bitter political rivals. Over the years, though, they were you had to present kind of a unified face in the Oslo priest process, but they did Joined not like each other. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, so he was there in the middle of that, and he was saying how message would go through, um, and you know, his time uh, interview in Paris and different ways things were leaked intentionally and accidentally. 
um, and, and the different politicians' reactions. What was very interesting is there's a number of times that, that leaks were made, and we were trying to figure out if it was intentional or accidental when a politician would accidentally call him. So he'd get a phone call, and then you know, <laughs> what they call a butt dial, in the middle of a meeting, and he'd be listening in, and then he'd publish it. And, and he would sometimes never tell them where that information came from. And sometimes wow. in the meeting... Uh, an advisor would come in and say, "There's stuff leaking from this meeting. Who's the one that's leaking it?" Oh, and then wow. he would keep, yeah, he would leak that, and it was a whole loop. But again, it might be that someone had an interest in leaking it. You can never know. You can never know with these politicians. But the, he was telling us stories about that, and it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful to be with him and Gil Tamari, uh, who people might know. He's an Israeli, uh, you know, television reporter. Um, also been at it for many years. He also had some some good stories. So that was. A wonderful opportunity to to sit with Nahum and Gil and and hear some of the stories from the seventies, eighties, and nineties. It's that thing that Shabbat can do when it brings even diverse people together. It's a warm environment to to you know, like you said before, religious, secular, all different approaches. But uh, Shabbat together is Shabbat together. At least the parts that were spent together. I hope you don't mind that. Yeah, and, and again, it, I, I realize. It, yeah, go ahead. Sure. No, go ahead. It reminded me of, of for people in the army, for army Shabbats, where you can't go anywhere and you have nothing to do except talk to right. each other. So, again, we were in a corona capsule. We could not leave the hotel. Um, we were near the White House, near the Washington Monument. On a normal Shabbat, people would be walking around the mall and even going to the Smithsonian Museums for free. But we were just stuck in the hotel with each other, so, so we had to talk to each other. It was either that or take It made me really sad. You said it, it reminded you of old NCSY Shabbatons where you were by yourself. Like that... That was sort of confessional. Everything okay when you were like was that as an as an introvert who you who who gets stuck uh, in you know, situations uh, and is uncomfortable? I, I related to that aside. Do you remember that you put that parenthetically in? You know, middle school and, and high school can be a tough time socially. You know, Gosh, <laughs> so, man. I so related uh, to that. I think I think we've all been there. You go to these yeah these Shabbatones and. And, uh, you know, it's a bunch of new people, cool kids, uncool kids. Yeah. Uh, it definitely had the, that feel because no one really knew who was supposed to be talking to whom and whether we could talk to the advisors. And it was little groups of people that knew each other. Oh, and slowly, oh, slowly, wow. people ventured out. So it had that feel. It was like a middle school dance or something. Oh, I hate yeah. it so much. I hate it so much. Can you, That's where can it brought you me back, too, by a little bit about different associations. Uh, it, it, I'm, uh, well, you know, I used to watch my extroverted friends with such envy that they, they were just thriving off that sort of getting to meet new people. And, and I just never knew how to handle that so, social. But I'm glad that for you guys, it seemed like it, it warmed up a little. You got a little more comfortable. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, no. So nowadays, you know, since I've been through the army and everything uh, as an officer, <laughs> yeah. I'm entirely no, seriously, I'm, I'm entirely extroverted and and even good at that stuff now. Uh, yeah. But it's if for people for Olim, you might recognize this that it's harder in hebrew to do so in english yeah. i can schmooze with yeah. anybody and you know you can go right to sports baseball football fishing or whatever and you know immediately i can connect with people and i was doing it all over dc in hebrew it's it's more difficult if you didn't grow up there because you don't you know you're kind of missing your fastball in the language even though you can understand yeah. you can express and everything uh-huh. you don't have uh every nuance and, and it's a little bit more of a challenge so i certainly have an advantage for other you know Anglo's or Bennett, the Bennett, you know, he, his parents are American. He spent some time in America, so so there's advantages there, and you find the Cross, advisors who come. Al. Th- What's that? 
Liel has that. Liel's bilingual, so she... Yeah, I, I ah. grew up in Israel, even though I sound... Gotcha. Really All right, yeah, so you're good in both <laughs> worlds. Um, yes, but it's also an advantage, because then when you can find the advisor or the person that you need um, that, you know, that comes from that same cultural background, there's that immediate connection. So uh, it's both an advantage and a disadvantage. No, I was glad you put words. that line. It, 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 that was one of the lines that really made me feel very much like in the room. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, when you said that, like, it felt like that. I was like, I feel in the room. And then I'm telling you, I'm not, and to full disclosure, I'm not a Bennett voter. I don't anticipate being a Bennett voter in the future. But when he started Shabbat with a couple of divrei Torah, a, a couple of Torah, uh, uh, you know, exposition, I don't know what you call it. What, how, how, what's a divrei Torah in English? A, uh, yeah, like, um, a Torah idea to share, to start Shabbat. I, I got a little choked yeah. up that, you know, I thought that was very, very beautiful. Can, can you briefly tell us about what was going on with you in Iraq with the, with the Kurdish people and learning Kurdish and interacting with the Kurds and your interest in the Kurdish people? Sure. Okay. So, yeah. So nothing to do with Bennett or any of this stuff. This is just me, Laser Berman. Um, you're just kind of an interesting the- person. Sorry. I know you're, Thank you're you. again. I by the way, I, and I do want to put this caveat. I know for a journalist, it's a little bit, again, you know, we're making you the story. So this isn't your journalistic beat, so I'm, I'm more comfortable asking about the Iraq stuff. But I just the – re- and I want to be explicit to our listeners off the record, I guess. This isn't off the record on background. The reason I, I, I want to ask you all these questions about your journalistic technique is I find that you know, many of our listeners are younger, college age. And they don't they, – they see media as this sort of mushy, ever-pervasive world of information. And they don't understand that journalism is a profession, that what you're doing to get us information – has a methodology and, and a system and a set of ethics and principle. And, 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 and so yeah, it's I think, always I think that's, my, go ahead. Yeah, it's a, it's a side mission of mine to make sure young people understand what journalism is as a source of information. It doesn't mean you believe everything, you know, carte blanche if it's in a, a, a journalistic organ, they make mistakes or, or, or they're misinformed or whatever. But you take a journalist's information in a very different way than you take any other form of media presentation. Yeah, so just on, on that media side, I think yeah, it's important that people realize that it's not only a profession, it's a fundamental pillar of democracy when it functions properly. Yeah. So yep. there are powerful Essential. people, whether you like them or not, they're powerful people who have control over our lives to imagine that they're all doing things, you know, for the public interest, I think is is naive. Whether they're, they're you support them or not, you know that everyone has their own political interest, and every decision that a politician makes has a political um, right. But the problem consideration to it, even if it's everyone treats journalists that way as well. It'll mean the journalists all have a political interest, and so you can't believe anything they say. So once you've discounted the politics, it used to be journalism was presented as the buffer between the politicians we have to distrust who are getting us information. And now I think it's common right. to think that, of journalists the same way we think of politicians. Exactly. That's why freedom and of press is again, you can you have, have to a be democracy. A critical consumer of, yeah. Yeah, well, you can't have a. Good. No, I agree with you. You can't have a democracy without journalism. And, and you have to, I think, abide by the institutions and, and, and appreciate their strengths as well as be aware of their flaws. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, there is. That's why. Uh-oh. Oh, there you are. Okay, we had a little zoom hiccup there. I think we're back. You okay there? We lost you a little on the zoom. Hello. 
Okay, but you're still recording on your device. Yeah, I had to log back in. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Can you so tell us what yeah, uh, a little bit about your background? Okay. Uh, so I understand. So I'm having trouble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll just say something about the about the journalism side. Don't talk about the Kurds. Um, yeah, so it's impossible to have a democracy without a freedom of the press. Um, when it works properly, it is how the people know who to support, who to vote for, who to hold accountable. Um, so it is absolutely fundamental. At the same time, there is a problem in journalism today where it's becoming more and more partisan and, and they, they're pushing ideologies and they're pushing their lines and that we should also have to hold journalists accountable. That you know if someone uh, has a certain line and, and a certain political bent and that's shaping their coverage, uh, then, then that certainly needs to be taken account and it might even be someone that, that should be discounted as a journalist. So journalists are also very powerful and they can also bring down governments and they can also affect people's lives. So it's up to the citizens of democracy to be actively keeping an eye both on the politicians and, and on the mm-hmm. journalists. And, and, it's part of and the that is something that needs to be checked and balanced. And they are, in fact, Absolutely. one of the major checks and balances. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So... Um, and I will say that when you say I don't want to put myself in this story, journalists are very good at – they want to be the star journalists. So they're very good at putting themselves in stories somehow and, and on their Twitter. So uh, keep an eye out for that uh, By as the well. way, I think it's one of the dangers of tweeting – of journalists who tweet. I, and and, and I, I certainly follow them. I find it super-duper interesting. But it is a little bit problematic. For sure. I, I have tried yeah. not to tweet up and told I need to tweet more. So there we go. But it yeah, certainly is not something yeah. I wanted to do. Um, now, on the Kurdistan side, okay, so when I graduated uh, from Georgetown in 2010, um, I decided uh, I wanted to be an expert on Kurds. They're a, uh, they're a people, they're the largest people in the world and largest nation in the world without their own country, 30 to 40 million, mostly in Turkey, but also northern Iraq, uh, western Iran, northeastern Syria, um, and there are people who are generally not anti-Semitic. It's a mostly Muslim, mostly Sunni Muslim people. Uh, similar in culture and language to, to Persians, but, but certainly distinct. So I started stu- studying the Kurdish language. My tutor in D.C. found me a job teaching at Salahaddin University in Erbil, which is the capital of the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq, which is an, a constitutionally autonomous region. I flew there. I taught there for two semesters. I studied Kurdish, traveled around the country. So that includes uh, Lalish, which is the Yazidi temple, the, their Beit HaMikdash. Um, um, I went to the, the tomb of Nahum. So he's a biblical prophet. He has his own book in the Bible, a Jewish prophet. It's mm-hmm. still a Jewish site in the middle of an Aramaic-speaking Christian town called El Kosh. Made it to the Iranian, uh, Iran-Iraq border looked at Iranian soldiers. So it was fascinating. And then I ended up also working for the Kurdistan Mm. regional government with Kubad Talabani, who's the son of Jalal Talabani, who was the the president of Iraq at the time. I had a dinner at the house of Barham Saleh, who's the current Iraqi president, also occurred. Um, So it was a unique opportunity to, to get insight into the Iraqi picture from the Kurdish angle. And again, Kurds are relevant to the Syrian civil war. They're relevant to what's going on in Turkey, relevant to Iran. So it's a relevant people, but it's a people that has not been able uh, to gain international support for independence. They had a referendum in 2018 that 99% voted for independence. Only Israel supported them Mm -hmm. publicly as a country for independence. But uh, other countries are always willing to take the interests of the more powerful states like Turkey, uh, or Iran, and make sure that the Kurds do not have their own state. 
I mean, yeah, as a Zionist, you know, Zionists tend to feel a sense of uh, empathy for for what they're going through as a stateless as a stateless people. Uh, I definitely think we're going to want you back <laughs> for that conversation to to flesh out. Um, well, bringing it back to um, to your experience at the White House, I was just wondering, given everything that happened in. Uh, the, everything that happened when you were there um, was that a topic of conversation? Everything that happened in Afghanistan, a topic of Afghan of conversation for us or I mean, between the president yeah. and Bennett? So no, for for you, for the journalists that were there, anyone oh, that sure. was inside the capsule that you were able to communicate with, because you had a lot of like we were talking about before, a lot of in journalists there were from different places, different opinions. Um, oh, yeah. so I'm glad you asked that because I, I should have brought this up anyway. In the hotel, so in the Willard Intercontinental Hotel, you go through the lobby. There's a nice, beautiful hallway, pictures of Abraham Lincoln. One of the rooms there, it said COMTF and a bunch of you know guys with beards and tattoos and special forces looking guys in there. What were they doing? They That was a task force, combined task force of military and de- different agencies working to get Afghans out. So that was wow. one of the main government operations was right there in the hotel. We were walking right by them. Um, I even sat nearby them and you know listened in for a bit. And then I even saw a friend of mine from my army days. He was in the U.S. Special Forces, but we had done some stuff together um, on the general staff level. So uh, you know, I said hi to him briefly. So uh, there was Afghanistan was figuratively all around this visit and literally it was in the hotel that's where the operation to get refugees out was so it was all over the place absolutely what was the tone of those people i mean they must have been pretty exhausted and desperate at that point uh yes they were they were working all night every time i walked by they were working you got a sense of how uh, I guess chaotic and kind of slapped together it was. You could hear people introducing themselves to each other. It wasn't you know one uh, military unit or one agency that knew each other. And in terms of just casting about for solutions, they brought up you know the Qatari ambassador's plane we can get, and there's a CNN journalist on the ground we can use his comms. So it would seem to be just whatever they had left in the country trying or in the region uh, trying to use that. To, to get a few more people out, but but that was <laughs> that was right next to us, so there was no getting away from the Afghanistan uh, story. Was there any conversation amongst the Israelis about how it'll affect the region, how it affect Israel, anything like that? That's a good question. Not amongst I I, re, I wrote about it at the Times of Israel, um, and I, I can share my thoughts in that. Um, it's indicative of a longer term trend of the U.S looking to leave the region, which means less U.S. influence in the region, which means less U.S. credibility in the region. Uh, so in one way, that's not good for Israel because other actors come and fill the vacuum left by the United States. There's no vacuum in nature. There's no vacuum in the Middle East. That means Iran, Russia, China fill those vacuums. That's not a good thing for Israel. It also means that uh, pro-Western partners of Israel in the region, let's say the Saudis and UAE, Understand. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, that's why he's it's a separate recording. Okay. Hello. Yeah, I guess just finish your thought. You seem to be. Hello? We seem to be having a little Zoom. Hello, hello. Hello. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, I'm just going to keep talking. Oh, and I'll, Yeah, I get you. I'm just, yeah, finish your thought. I'm just going to keep talking. Okay. Um, so pro-Western 
uh, partners of Israel in the region, let's say the Saudis and the UAE and the Persian Gulf, they understand that they cannot rely on uh, U.S. presence and certainly not U.S. military operations to keep them safe from Iran. And you see them reacting. There are Saudi-Iranian talks that have been going on all year. And that's as a balance against this withdrawal of U.S. Um, of U.S. influence and forces in the region. It's somewhat positive for Israel in another way that if the U.S. is not as engaged in the region, it knows that Israel, um, as a fully self-sustained, uh, most capable military in the region, uh, rises in its importance. So if in terms of intelligence, in terms of any quiet operations that need to be done, um, Israel is the one that can lead them and, and that it becomes uh, even more important for America in terms of you know, a very capable ally in the region that can actually shape events on the ground. Um, well, we're, so, we're going to yeah. have to have you back. You, you, you're super generous for, for giving time on your – you're taking a little break now. So we, re, we really appreciate yeah. the time. We're going to have to have you back because I have a million, billion more questions. Uh, Sounds good. Even, you know, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what was with the de-emphasis of the term Abraham Accord? I, I have a million more questions, but you're a little too interesting to just go by the checklist. So uh, uh, thank you so much, again, especially when you are on a break in America. Thank you. We really, really appreciate it a lot, your insight. And uh, you, I think you should be a little more braggy, honestly. That was super cool. I understand you were waiting in the sun. But, dude, <laughs> you were in there with the prime minister and the president, man. That's cool stuff. Just, you know, I, I realize you got to, like, sound all professional and stuff. But that's pretty cool. Your parents were super happy. Your family is going like, wow, can you believe lasers? I got it. <laughs> Bragging you know? about their son. Yeah. Come on. So thank you again. Thank you so much. This is great. Yeah, uh, you sure. Thank you. Off. I enjoyed it. We will talk again. Awesome. You don't have to log off the Zoom, but it's the end of the episode, so I'm stopping the recording. Bye-bye. Massah Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the State of Israel. Massah offers life-transforming, long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MassahIsrael.org for more info.